Quaker.com podcast. My name is Ben Stone. Today is Thursday, August 23rd, 2012, and this is podcast number 193. We're very rapidly approaching our 200th podcast. Before I get into the main topic today, I always like to get all the housekeeping taken care of ahead of time. I want to talk to you about what's coming up, uh, the changes coming up at the Bad Quaker uh, website at badquaker.com. We are working with a company called Notion 3, and they're some really, really good uh, website designers and a design team, actually. It's some some really impressive uh, work they've shown us. And they're going to be um, upgrading our entire website. It looks like, at this point, it looks like there's going to be a um, some kind of a posting board or perhaps a forum. And uh, there's going to be a lot of, uh, it's, it, the site itself is going to be a lot more functional. It's not only going to look better, but it's going to be a lot more functional. It'll be easier to search through and find old podcasts. And uh, it'll, it'll have a separate area for podcasts and a continuing blog where, where we can put um, articles and so forth like that separate from the, uh, from the podcast. Currently at badquaker.com, it's kind of confusing because everything is in that same stream. So... Um, you know, an update to an article or, a, or, or an article as an update, um, it, it's very confusing because it's all blended together and it's hard to go back and find things. So, I mean, it was, a be, you know, it was the best we could do when we threw the thing together a year and a half ago and none of us really knew what we were doing anyway. So, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, I'm not trying to, to put anybody down for the work that they've put on it or anything like that. It's just that now we're going to have this professional company doing this for us and we're hopefully we're going to look really good and be really functional and all those wonderful things. In addition to that, you know, I've been talking about a page with a uh, like a list of books or a reading list or uh, you know books to own or so forth like that. We'll we'll definitely be incorporating that into the new uh, into the new badquaker.com website. Uh, and those books will be separated by topic and subtopic and you know, like history and U.S. history and the Constitution and so forth. So I, want, I want, just want to encourage you, we're working on it. I know, you know, I got ribbed a little bit by uh, one of the folks over there on BadQuaker.com. He put a, a funny little jab at us that, you know, hey, hey, you promised this. Well, we're working on it. We'll get to it as quick as we can, Doc, I promise. Okay, and um, with that out of the way, I want to jump right into this because... You know, looking at my notes, I'm really not sure today. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to squeeze this all into one uh, podcast. I may have to divide it divide it into two podcasts. I, I'm not sure exactly. You know, because it's one of these topics where I've got all my notes together and everything, but looking at it, I may blaze through this and get right through it in 15 or 20 minutes and then run out of material. Or I might start really uh, going off on one or two of these side topics 
and I could really turn this into, you know, a 19-hour exploration of the topic. So stick with me. Uh, I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants here. I don't really know how how big this thing's going to be once I uncork it and start letting it fly, but but let's see what happens anyway. Uh, very rarely will I tell the title of my podcast before I go through and listen to it and hear the you know hear what I've said and everything because oftentimes what I end up saying is not necessarily part of my notes and it just uh, you know the podcast goes in a different direction. I'm going to try to keep this podcast as much on topic as possible. Um, you know, <laughs> realizing who's talking here and saying that. But uh, but the but the title, my working title on this podcast is Mimics in the Garden of Liberty. And so I want to start this out by talking specifically about a garden. And and I am a gardener. Now, I've, I've slacked off to a certain extent this year um, because of a lot of reasons. This, this year, the garden was just overwhelming for me. And with everything else in life, I wasn't able to do the kind of gardening that I've done in the past. But we still have some things. You know, we have um, uh, two different varieties of fresh peppers growing. And, and I've had one of those plants now that's a couple years old that I bring in the house and put it back outside in the in the I bring it in in the winter and put it out in the in the uh, better uh, uh, weather. And so we've got we've got fresh peppers coming off of uh, of two different varieties from three different plants, and we've got some tomatoes growing out there, and we've got you know the the regular oh we've got a nice batch of broccoli growing, and then we've got the regular seasonal the the uh, the uh, perennial stuff. You know uh, the the fruit trees that we have, and grapes, uh, um, you know raspberries, blackberries, uh, blueberries, that kind of stuff. The uh, the asparagus, all that stuff grows uh, pretty much whether you do anything with it or not. So we've got all that. I've got a huge uh, um, herb garden out in front, like right along the walkway in front. I'm surprised that the city hasn't uh, made a fuss over it because it looks like a mass of weeds, but what it actually is is a sort of a butterfly, uh, a butterfly draw and uh, an herb garden together. So there's flowering stuff in there that wildflowers that draw the butterflies, and then there's all my my herbs that are growing out there as well. Now, um, one of the thing that, one of the things that a gardener begins to find out if he starts if he's really paying attention and he's a good gardener, one of the things the gardener is going to see right away is the many examples of mimicry that are in nature. And you see these in a garden. You can also see them out in nature, out in the wild, in forests or in the ocean or whatever. Deserts, they're everywhere. Uh, mimicry is throughout nature. But in the garden specifically, you can you can really get to see examples of mimicry um, that are that are pretty dramatic. And uh, I'm going to go through some definitions for mimicry and talk about each one a little bit. And stick with me if you're thinking, you know, wait a minute, I, you know, I don't I don't have a garden. I don't want to have a garden. I'm not going to have a garden. I don't want to learn about a garden. That's okay. Like like a lot of things, I start talking about something, and what I want to do is get your mind to accept certain um, basic thoughts, and then I want to take those and apply them to something completely different so that you can see the, the similarity and the contrast between two very different and yet strikingly similar concepts. So that's what I want to do. Again, 
This is Mimics in the Garden of Liberty. So first I'm going to lay the groundwork here for Mimics in the Garden, and then we're going to talk about the Garden of Liberty. One of the phrases in learning about mimicry is a, a Batesian mimic or a Batesian mimicry. Batesian uh, mimicry is a protective or a defensive mimicry where the mimic, um, it, it does best by avoiding confrontation. Okay, so for example, there are certain butterflies that look, that, that are tasty, that birds love to eat. And so they look very much like nasty moths that the birds, uh, that the birds don't want to eat. And so this is a defensive form of mimicry where the, where the butterfly survives by looking like a nasty, yucky uh, moth. And there are, the, there are examples the other way around, too, where a moth will mimic looking like a poison butterfly. And therefore, the moth doesn't get eaten by birds. Uh, it can go around and do, you know, do what moths do without the fear of being eaten because the bird looks at it and thinks that it's a, a nasty, poisonous butterfly when in fact it's a very tasty moth. Uh, another f now that's uh, a Batesian mimicry is a form of defensive mim mimicry. Aggressive mimicry is when a predator or a parasite, uh, they use mimicry as a bait. Um, the mimic may resemble its own prey or some other organism that's beneficial or at least not harmful to the prey. Uh, aggressive mimicry often involves the predator employing signals that draw its potential prey towards it. Um, this strategy allows the predator to simply sit and wait for the prey to come to it. So, for example, um, I'm probably going to put a picture up on today's, uh, on, uh, with this uh, podcast on badquaker.com of a very famous uh, fish that kind of has this thing protruding out of its forehead that looks like a worm on a fishing pole. And what it does, what this fish does, is it, it kind of hides back in rocks or coral or bush or yeah, underwater bushes of some kind. It'll hide back in a place with only its head sticking out and its mouth with these huge, sharp teeth wide open. And this uh, this fishing pole thing sticks off of its head, and there's like this little worm-like uh, appendage that hangs off of this fishing pole-like appendage, and it just slowly wiggles right in front of this fish's mouth. And when another fish comes up and tries to bite that worm-like object, then this fish just jumps out and gulps it down. You see, uh, it's actually using what looks like a fishing pole and a worm to draw its bait up close enough to its mouth where it can gobble it down. And so uh, get over to badquaker.com and, and see the picture. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make every effort to, to post the picture of the fish that I'm talking about. But that's an example of aggressive mimicry. Um, there's another type of mimicry called Mertesian mimicry. Um, this is when a deadly mimic resembles something less harmful. Now, here's an example. Scientists believe that the deadly coral snake is a mimic uh, of the harmless false coral snake. Now, oftentimes you would, you would think the other way around. You would think, well, this, this false coral snake looks very similar to the coral snake because the because the false coral snake is being defensive it's trying to copy something that looks deadly by making you know by making itself look deadly um, but actually and and that was the way scientists first thought of this when they when they th compared these the um, coral snake and the false coral snake they thought the false coral snake is trying to look like the coral snake but what they found was the other way around they found that with the tendency of other animals interacting with these two snakes indicates 
that the mimicry actually took place on on the part of the coral snake trying to make himself look um, less less dangerous. So so that's an example of um, Mertesian mimicry. Now, another type of mimicry is called, and I'm going to probably mispronounce this because it's named after a Russian guy, but and I and I don't do uh, Russian words all that well, but it's Vavilovan mimicry. This is um, this is what you see mostly in the garden. This is where a, a weed resembles a crop, and humans are the agent of selection in this type of mimicry. Now, what I mean by that is, um, over long periods of time, humans have gardened or farmed specific plants, and they have specifically chose seeds that were more productive or more tasty or more or whatever that produced a better plant a more a more desirable plant and they have consistently replanted that seed over and over and um and you know uh, uh, through through selection humans have intentionally selected the best of their crops to replant again therefore refining each species of crop but at the same time there were these weeds that found it beneficial to be right in that same garden, growing side by side with those plants. So, for example, types of mimicry of, of this time of this type uh, examples I should say examples of mimicry of this type uh, could include uh, like there are types of uh, grass that mimic rice, and so you raise the rice. You think you're raising the rice, but hidden among the rice is grass. And even when you harvest it, it's hard to to separate the kernels of grass. Uh, the seeds of grass out from the rice. So you actually end up replanting the grass when you replant the rice. Um, so so it's, you know, it's, it's very hard to... And what this does, of course, it, it takes away from your rice crop because the grass is not nutritious like the rice is, or less nutritious, that is. So, so the grass is not a, a crop that you want to be growing, but you end up... Um, you know, you end up with less of a yield of rice because the grass is growing in there. And the same thing happens. There are species of grass that look like wheat that do the same thing. Another example of this is um, there, there are briars that grow in a cotton field that exactly look like, the plant itself exactly looks like the, 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 the cotton plant all the way until it almost reaches maturity. And then all of a sudden, instead of putting out cotton, this, this plant puts out a big cluster of briars. And these briars are particularly nasty. They're about the size of your thumb. And there's a lot of stickers cover all over the briar, all over the, the, the briar itself, all over the, the sticker. And what it'll have a tendency to do is get caught in the harvesting machines that harvest the cotton. And it'll, uh, because the, 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 the thorns on this thing are, are sort of hook-shaped, They'll hook into the cotton, and it's and it clogs up your cotton uh, um, harvesting machines and so forth. It causes a lot of trouble. But the reason that the briar is, continues to exist is because it looks so much like the cotton plant that it's difficult to see. It'll look across the field and see which is briars and which is cotton. And then, of course, one of its tendencies to get hooked into the cotton helps assure that the seeds of the briar are going to be distributed back in the same field again. And therefore, it, it, see, it's, it's this, uh, it's this um, almost like a parasitical relationship with the cotton, um, the, the, where the briar is mimicking the cotton. And I know this because I spent 
a lot of time in the cotton fields in the San Joaquin Valley walking through looking for these. We called them tares um, because there's a biblical description of, of, a, of a plant, of a mimic that's called a tare that grows up in the harvest. And the, you have to go through and separate it. Um, and get it out from among the harvest. And then you, you know, in the, in the biblical sense, they would take them and pile them and burn them. They would go through before the harvest and they would pluck out the mimics and they would put them in a pile and they would burn them uh, long before the harvest time came. And this is an example, uh, I've used this uh, in a theological example, I've used this uh, to explain how in the, near the end of time, the the uh, the tares will be separated from the wheat. The tares will be plucked out and piled separately and burned, whereas the good crop will continue. And uh, I make that argument whenever I try to deal with someone who believes in the rapture doctrine, which was invented by a by a um, a Puritan in the 1600s. And I slap that down pretty. I have a lot of enjoyment when I slap that doctrine down. But I use I use the the example of the tares as as uh, as a, a biblical example of how uh, what the uh, what the end times uh, are supposed to look like. So anyway, so back to the garden idea. So you get the idea that there are these mimics that do everything that they can to try to look like there's something that you want to have in your garden, but then they produce something that you definitely don't want in your garden. Um, and unless you have a sharp eye, then you just will allow these mimics to, to waste the nutrients that are in your soil by, you know, they're, they're taking nutrients, they're taking water that, sh- that should be going to your crops, and instead they're going to something that's not going to, um, that's not going to produce the crop that you want from your garden. So now I'm going to break, and when I come back, uh, I'm going to go into a little bit different. We're going to go away from the actual garden and more towards the, more towards the garden of liberty. So stick with me. I'll be right back. I'd like to talk to you about Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. The Liberty Classroom is a collection of courses on history and Austrian economics presented in an easy, convenient way. There are video files and audio files you can download. You can participate in discussions online in the discussion boards. And there are live sessions with Tom Woods and the other educators where you can directly interact with the instructors. Now, who is this for? It's for anyone who realizes that they didn't get the real story in government-approved schools. It's also great for homeschoolers and unschoolers. Join Tom Woods and his team, and they'll equip you with one of the very best tools the Liberty Movement has to offer, knowledge, real knowledge in a usable form. At Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom, you can get all this for only $99 a year. Now, that's less than the cost of one movie DVD a month. This gets you access to absolutely everything on their site, all the courses plus additional courses that will be added later, the discussion forums, the live sessions, everything. So how do you do this? You go to badquaker.com. You click on the banner for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. By using that link, you'll let Tom know that I sent you, and you'll help keep badquaker.com on the Internet. Thank you very much. Okay, now thanks for sticking with me through the break. And I was uh, before the break, I was talking about mimics, mimics in the garden, mimics in nature, uh, examples of mimics. Um, now I want to talk about uh, the Garden of Liberty, and specifically mimics in the Garden of Liberty. Now, uh, keep in mind why, why we don't want mimics in our garden, because uh, there's a couple of reasons. First off, like the mimics that I was talking about with weeds, and I was talking about with um, rice and wheat. The mimics with rice and wheat 
the reason that you don't want them growing among your rice and wheat is because they steal nutrients and they steal water that your that your desirable crops could be utilizing to grow you know more abundant and, and produce and so forth so basically it's a distraction away from your harvest it's not it's not necessarily destroying anything in your garden but it's certainly um, reducing your yield and now the the briars that I was talking about that mimic cotton those are a little different in the sense that they actually gum up your equipment and they can lower the quality of your cotton production, lower the quality of the cotton that you produce, and therefore lower your actual pay for the cotton that you're selling. So these are, um, uh, there's a slight difference there in the sense that, yeah, with the rice and the wheat you have a lower yield, but with the cotton you actually produce a lower quality cotton if you don't take care of your cotton crop and get get the mimics out of your cotton. And, but then it's more deadly when you take it maybe away from that part of the garden and you realize that, you know, um, remember that uh, example of the aggressive mimicry where uh, something that seems um, perfectly fine, hey, it's just a worm floating around here, I can just go over and get that worm, and then smack, that fish is eaten by some bigger fish that's got that worm thing sticking off of its forehead. Well, this is the case that we face in the Garden of Liberty. There are mimics to what we do. There are mimics out there that use exactly the same words as we use, but they are mimicking us. They are not, uh, they are not echoing the meaning that we use with those words. And this gets really confusing for people. I remember one time uh, watching, uh, I was listening, it was on the radio, um, I was listening to a, a, a libertarian commentator and uh, one of the callers called in to the t- to the show. You know what? Now that I think of it, I was watching it. It was on um, it was on uh, uh, that government access. Oh, I can't remember what it's called. I couldn't think of it there. I had to pause the uh, the recording. C-SPAN. It was uh, I was I was watching this on I was watching this on C-SPAN, and they had a libertarian author that was talking about whatever it was that he was talking about, some book or whatever. Uh, and they had callers call in, and one of the callers was a very, very liberal person, um, and she was really, really angry. This was back during the George W. Bush days, so that's how far back I'm talking, probably 2005 or 2006, something like that. And this li- this very liberal caller called in to, uh, to C-SPAN and just fiercely attacked this libertarian because you could tell by her comments she had no idea that there was a difference between a libertarian and a uh, and the neocons the so-called conservatives but the neocons uh, like George W Bush and she was just making uh, horrible accusations about libertarians and clearly she had no idea what she was talking about and yet yet there there's a reason why she was so fooled and why she was so confused about this um about this libertarian and his ideas, and there's a reason she thought that he was a conservative, and um, and it's because of the mimicry. Now, I'm gonna I, if regular listeners to this podcast might be thinking Ben's getting ready to attack the Cato Institute. That's what's about to happen. Well, back to the garden. That would be low hanging fruit, now, wouldn't it? Um, I'm not gonna pick on Cato today. Um, I'll leave them. There, I could do a whole podcast just on those guys, but I'm going to leave them alone for a moment. I'm going to go with something 
a little bit more obvious to most libertarians, a little bit clearer that they are definitely not one of us, and that's the Hoover Institute. The Hoover Institute, if you go to their website, their tagline on, their, on the front page of their website says, The Hoover Institute, Ideas Defining a Free Society. Ideas Defining a Free Society. So the, so the Hoover Institute wants a free society. Well, that's great, isn't it? It's great. We got the Hoover Institute on our side. They want a free society. But what do they mean by a free society? This, this is Orwellian speak. What do they mean by free society? It's not what we mean when we say a free society. You go through and you start learning about the Hoover Institute and the things they support and the, things, the different things that they have, um, have backed in the past. And you start to get a really uh, odd situation. Let's look at the Hoover Institute's mission statement. The Hoover Institution's mission statement says, Now more than five decades old, Herbert Hoover's 1959 statement to the Board of Trustees of Stanford University on the purpose and scope of the Hoover Institution continues to guide and define its mission in the 21st century. And now here's the... Here's the, uh, the uh, all this is quoted from their uh, mission statement site, but here's the quote from Herbert Hoover that they're, uh, that they're so happy about. This institution supports the Constitution of the United States, its Bill of Rights, and its method of representative government. Both our social and economic systems are based on private enterprise, from which springs initiative and ingenuity. Ours is a system where the federal government should undertake no governmental, social, or economic action except where local government or the people cannot undertake it for themselves. Huh. The overall mission of this institution is, from its records, to recall the voice of experience against the making of war, and by the study of these records and their publication, to recall man's endeavors to make and preserve peace, and to sustain for America the safeguards of the American way of life. This institution is not and must not be a mere library, but with these purposes as its goal, this institution itself must continually, oh, I'm sorry, must constantly and dynamically point the road to peace, to personal freedom, and to the safeguards of the American system. You know what? That's blather. That is absolute gobbledygook. What, what exactly do these words and phrases mean? If these people say that, uh, as their tagline, ideas defining a free society, and then they throw stuff at us like, our system is where the federal government should undertake no governmental, social, or economic action except, except, except where local government or the people cannot undertake it for themselves. That's funny. Isn't that kind of what... People like Hillary Clinton believe when they try to force on America the different liberal agendas that they do. When people like um, when people like um, Nancy Pelosi, when approached about the uh, you know is healthcare is healthcare constitutional, and she laughs. You know why she laughed? The Republicans got it all wrong. They thought she was mocking their, their holy constitution. Oh, how dare she, she mock the constitution. No, she wasn't mocking it. 
she believes that the that the whole health care thing fits into the Constitution because she believes that the Constitution is does exactly what these guys at the Hoover Institution said. It's government is supposed to do for people what people can't do for themselves. What people can't do for themselves gives the government a license to step in and do anything that the government decides is good for you and that you can't do for yourself. Why can't you do it yourself? Well, because you're just a person. Government is special. Government is powerful. Government is magic. Government is good. Government is wise. Government knows what's best for you. You see, if you really look at that mission statement at the Hoover Institute, what you really see is an excuse, just like what the whole Constitution is. It's an excuse for government to grow as big as it wants. It's, it's so full of caveats and so full of, of vague wording so that it can basically allow government to do anything it wants under the guise of helping you. Isn't that what the drug war is? Isn't the drug war to keep you safe? Aren't we bombing, you know, I say we, isn't the U.S. government bombing wedding parties in foreign countries to keep you safe? Isn't that why they kill children? Isn't that why they kill little brown Muslim children to keep you safe? You see? And you can't do it for yourself. You can't reach out far to you know far across distant oceans and kill little brown children yourself the government has to do it for you you see how the license is laid out by people like the hoover institute you see the mimicry that goes on oh they're they're here to limit government except where local government or people can't undertake it for themselves the government shall undertake no action unless unless it really needs to be done right that's pretty sick. All right, let me get back to my notes a little bit here. Evidently, I'm looking at the clock. Evidently, this is going to be a two-part thing. So we might as well just bolt, bolt the, the, the place down and, and lock up the furniture because we're going to be in this for, for at least two podcasts. So, Okay, so now, under the heading Task Forces and Working Groups, we find an article by Paul E. Peterson. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, Paul E. Peterson. Here's a quote from his article that appears in the section, Task Forces and Working Groups. He says, Mr. Bush, he's talking about George W. Bush, Mr. Bush placed school accountability high on the nation's agenda. When No Child Left Behind was passed, school districts felt, oops, school districts felt under strong moral pressure to ensure that students were learning. And the, the point of this article, I might point out, is that Paul E. Peterson is praising George W. Bush and slamming Barack Obama. Now, I have no problem slamming Barack Obama. You know, he's just a thief like all the others. But, um, but clearly, you can see from this article that he is just praising, just heaping praise on Bush and then pounding Barack Obama, like there's really a difference in these two clowns, right? But, but here's his statement. He says, the No Child Left Behind was passed, when, when the No Child Left Behind was passed, school districts felt under strong moral pressure to ensure that students were learning. No Child Left Behind 
No, no Child Left Behind was a massive government expansion in size and power and scope. It uses threats of federal action against local school districts and local district employees if its agenda isn't followed. Now, how are threats to your employment moral pressure? The only, the only pressure that No Child Left Behind put on local schools or on anywhere in the school system was either threats of withdrawing federal money or threats that if, if the school district didn't fire certain people or didn't move them from, from one location in the school district to another, that it would pull back money. So, it, so No Child Left Behind, let's get this straight, was based entirely on threats, threats from the federal government onto the local level. Now, what kind of a threat produces moral pressure? Moral pressure. Are threats to employment moral pressure? Uh, can an organization based on immorality, can, like, like the government, act, um, act in any way that would create moral pressure? Can, can, a, can an organization based on theft and aggression and lies, like the government, can it even define what moral pressure is? Is it possible in any way for something that's based entirely on immorality to do something that would push someone towards morality? Is that even possible? You see, this is conservative thinking at its height. This idea that the government can be used to create something morally good. This is the, the very heart of conservative thinking right there at the Hoover Institute. You, you can't get more foundational conservative than that. Let me, uh, let me throw this in a different direction. Let me give you a, an example of conservative thinking. Some years back, uh, I was having a discussion on, uh, on a forum, and the topic came up that some senator or some congressman or some other, some other leech like that um, some other parasite, uh, was trying to push through this thing where uh, it, it was supposedly the, the problem was that people were using their welfare money to buy drugs. Oh, no. Oh, no. They're using their welfare money to buy drugs. Now, clearly, we can't have that. We can't have the government stealing money from you, then giving it to somebody who's then going to go take that money and buy drugs with it. We can't have that, right? So, so here's the conservative way of thinking. The conservative way of thinking is to, is to what? Say, well, let's stop stealing from people and then redistributing it to other people? No, no, they didn't even approach that as part of the topic. The conservative thinking was, well, we can't have these, these welfare bums using the dope. We can't have that. So what are we going to do? Well, let's threaten to cut off their welfare if they take the dope. Well, how are we going to know if they take the dope? Well, we'll have to drug test them, won't we? So, so that's the conservative thinking. The, this, this, uh, whoever this tax feeder was, his idea was, we'll just start testing everybody who gets welfare on any level. And if they get welfare, we'll test them for drugs. And if they show positive for drugs, we'll cut off their welfare. And the, and the conservatives on the forum board that I was on talking about this the conservatives were all happy. They were all practically jumping up and down with joy. This is the answer. This is what we can do. All we have to do is test all the test all these welfare bums. And and if they're the dopers using our our good tax money for their dope, then we can just cut off their welfare, right? Right? Isn't that brilliant? 
That's conservative thinking at its highest peak. Except here's what you just decided you're going to do. By doing this, you're creating layers and layers and layers and layers of brand new bureaucracies that have to decide what labs are going to be used, what doctor's offices can be used, um, new, new personnel are going to have to be hired into all these different levels to completely socialize a whole segment of the medical community so that you can move in the government into another section of medicine and take over and then create this whole bureaucracy of testing welfare recipient, recipients. And now honestly, do you honestly think that if you test them, that they're just going to suddenly go, oh, wow, I better stop using drugs? Or do you think that they will just honestly go down and give the right samples? Or do you think that no one in the system will ever slip a 20 to, a, to, to somebody else in the system and get a, a, get a bad test cleared? Do you, do you think that'll never happen? Do you think it's possible that layers of bureaucrats and layers of government employees are going to actually help the problem? So you're wanting to dump tons and tons more tax money into a system just because you're afraid somebody's using drugs with their welfare money. You see, that's the backward thinking that the conservative does, and he does it on a routine basis. He does it without thinking. He just accepts that the government, more government aggression is the answer. It doesn't matter what the question is. More government aggression, especially if it has something to do with morals, Anything moral-based, they want to bring more government aggression in to teach those people morals. Because in the conservative mind, morals come at the end of a big, long, heavy stick that they whack you in the head with until you behave in the way that they want you to behave. That's the conservative thinking. So these people use terminology like free society, smaller government, Decrease the size of government, downsize, all these phrases that sound so good to the liberty activist or the liberty, to the liberty lover. But in fact, what they're actually wanting to do is have a bigger, stronger, meaner government to tell you what to do. I'm going to break again, and when I come back from this break, we're going to take this uh, in, eh, well, I want to touch the Hoover Institute a little bit more before we move on. I'll be right back. What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN.FM. Okay, thanks for sticking with me. I'm going to take another swipe here at the Hoover Institute. And this, is, uh, this article is what actually drew my attention over to the Hoover Institute. I didn't start, uh, you know, my, I didn't start my notes to this podcast by saying, hey, I'm going to beat up the Hoover Institute. What I actually did, I, I bumped into an article um, on the Lou Rockwell blog that referred to an article by John Yu. That's uh, spelled Y-O-O, John Yu. And in this article, he says, um, he, he's talking about this struggle that the courts had, that the Supreme Court had, 
with the uh, with Obamacare, you know. And this is what John Yu says. This is this is my favorite quote of the article. He says, "By refusing to bless the idea of a limitless commerce clause, the court restored the central constitutional principle of limited federal powers." Now he and John Yu writes this over for uh, uh, the Hoover for the Hoover Digest uh, from uh, Hoover.org. And I'm not going to link to the story. It's you can find it at lourockwell.com, or you can just, I suppose you could Google John Yu. Uh, but but I, I'm not going to link to it because I I really don't want to draw any more attention to these people than I have to. That's why I'm not going to link. By the way, I'm not going to link to the Hoover Institute because I prefer that they didn't know I exist, and I'd prefer I'd actually prefer that I didn't know that they exist. But anyway. So, John Yu. So, what do we know about John Yu? Well, keep in mind what he said there, that he, he praised aspects of the court decision because um, it restored the central constitutional principle of limited federal powers. So, John Yu is happy about the central constitutional principle of limited federal powers. So, yeah, so John Yu is real happy that the Constitution limits federal powers, right? That's what John Yu stands for. Okay, let's think about who John Yu is. John Yu, spelled J-O-H-N-Y-O-O. Um, he was uh, he was a big shot lawyer for George W. Bush. He was the guy who basically um, wrote or co-authored the famous torture memo from August of 2002, which defined torture and allowed the CIA and other uh, governmental agencies to do some of the most nasty things that, uh, that, we, that we've heard about that were, were authorized during the George W. Bush years that, I might add, um, that you know, uh, Obama has continued with. He's, he hasn't changed the policy on those things. So, so this is who John Yoo is. He's the guy. Let me, let me read to you some of the stuff. Uh, you can find this over at Wikipedia if you just Wikipedia search John Yoo, J-O-H-N-Y-O-O. Uh, this is a discussion where, um, where in, court, in front of a judicial committee, um, Representative John Conyers was trying to get John Yoo to clarify his remarks about the president's power to 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 or to authorize torture, and so here's the, how the the discussion went. Uh, Conyers says, "I didn't ask you if you ever gave him advice. I ask you, do you think the president could order a suspect to be buried alive?" And you answers, "Mr. Chairman, my view right now is I don't think a president would." No American president would have to order that or feel it necessary to order that. Now, wait a minute. Conyers says, do you think the president could? And the way you answers him is, well, my view right now is I don't think a president would. Is that an answer? That's not even remotely like an answer. So how does Conyers answer? Conyers comes back and says, I think we understand the games that are being played here. You see that? Of course, Conyers is as bad a thief as anybody else. Not the point. And, and actually, him being a thief, just like the others, another tax eater, the fact that he is, is why probably that he didn't go ahead and pursue you and say, look, 
Mr. You. You did not answer that question. Let me rephrase the question to you over and over until you actually answer it. Do you believe, do you think the president can order a suspect to be buried alive? Now answer that question, you. But he didn't answer that, did he? He just said, well, I don't don't think a president has or could or would. Well, he didn't say could. He says, I don't think a president needs to do that. I don't think it's necessary. So you're not answering the question. And why is that? Why would you dodge around a question like that? Why would he dance around it other than the fact that you know, as an attorney for the government, that's his job to dance around questions. Well, it's because John Yu wrote the torture memo that said it's okay to do exactly that. In a different set of questioning, again, uh, reading off of Wikipedia's page, uh, Yu, John Yu was in a debate with law professor Doug Castle. And uh, Doug Castle asked him in the, ba- in the debate, he said, if the president deems that he's got uh, if, the, if the president deems that he's got to torture someone, including by crushing the testicles of the person's child, is there no law that can stop him? Now think about that for a minute. Think about the question he's asking you. And Yu's reply was, there's no treaty on that. And Castle follows up and says, also no law by Congress that is what you wrote in August 2002 memo. And you replies back, I think it depends on why the president thinks he needs to do that. You see the mentality here? You, first off, he's trying to talk his way out of the argument. He doesn't want to face what he's being presented with. So he'd rather talk in a circle. But at the same time, you is presenting the possibility that yes, indeed, um, that would be within the president's ability. You see how see how this John Yu thinks? You see the kind of a person that we're talking about here? Now keep in mind, he was just telling us about how the government should be, how, how happy he is that the court restored the central constitutional principle of limited federal powers. So the Constitution limits federal power, powers um, unless you need to crush a child's testicles. You know, then, hey, well, hey, that's something that uh, the individual can't do on their own, right? So the government's got to be able to crush a child's testicles. Individuals can't do that. The government's got to be able to, right? Isn't that the way that they're thinking? Isn't this the Hoover Institute's mentality here? Ideas defining a free society? Interesting, isn't it? There's an organization called Downsize DC. And if you look at the Founders Wiki page... It looks like, I'm not saying it was, I'm saying it looks like it was written by a PR firm. I mean, it just, it doesn't feel, it doesn't have the feel of every, every, uh, every other wiki page I've seen. It looks and it feels like it's been written by a PR firm. Now, when you get over to Downsize DC, I'm going to read some of the things that I found over there. Here's a phrase. It says, asking Congress to use the impeachment process is another way to withdraw your consent. Asking Congress to use the impeachment process is another way to withdraw consent. What kind of doublespeak nonsense is that? How can being involved with Congress equal withdrawing consent? How is it that, how is it that using the power of Congress to attack the president is withdrawing consent? This is doublespeak. This is exactly what we were reading over at the Hoover Institution. 
Here's another one from Downsize DC. We're steadfastly avoiding partisanship and personalities. Instead, we're sticking with principles. Oh, doesn't that sound wonderful? They're sticking with principles. But if you look around, there's something you don't see. You don't see a statement of those principles. Principle. Here's here's the definition for principle as I found it in the dictionary. A fundamental truth or proposition that serves as the foundation for a system of belief or behavior or for a chain of reasoning. Or a rule or belief that governs one's personal behavior. That's what a principle is. Now, Downsize DC says that they, uh, they're sticking with principles, but they don't tell you what the principles are. I wonder why that is. Let's look at their website really quickly. Downsize DC. It has the first one here that I see on their little blog is, Are you a post-statist? And then we see another one. See the new addition to the ZAP, Zap, to the Zap website. Oh, oh, the Zap. Everybody knows the Zap is the zero aggression principle in the liberty movement, right? Yeah, so they're talking about the zero aggression principle. That's great, right? Oh, and they have a new logo to go with their page on the Zap. Isn't that great? Um, And here's another one. The state is not a government. Wow. I'm going to read a little bit of that. Governments are supposed to protect us from criminals, but what if the government commits crimes? Can we still call it a government? I think we should at least use scare quotes over government. I would go further. An institution that commits crime is not a government. Honestly, uh, requires a more accurate label, such as a crime gang. Though many will find that shocking due to the Stockholm Syndrome. So I suggest that we call criminal government the state, in capitals, by the way. It's technically accurate and sounds appropriately ominous. And then it goes on from there. This sounds like something I wrote maybe a year ago. Here's some more. It says... Um, the state is not a government. The state is an unaccountable criminal gang. Well, this is very interesting. This is very, uh, this is, yay! We like that in the liberty movement. We like to hear this. This sounds like a, this sounds like a legitimate thing, doesn't it? But there's a problem with this. Downsize DC asks us, imagine a world where government only serves and never rules. And then they have, there's zero their ZAP, Z-A-P, is not the Zero Aggression Principle. It's the Zero Aggression Project. And you can join for $100. And then they tell us, oh, they're using the, your money very carefully. They're on a strictly limited $16,000 budget per month. They have a $16,000 budget per month over at Downsize DC. Imagine that. $16,000 per month budget. People are giving money to this. It's in the Garden of Liberty, sucking nutrients out that could be going to the garden. Now, why am I saying this? Why am I picking on Downsize DC? Well, let's just uh, read further, shall we? Are you a post-statist? Now, listen to this. I'm, quote, I'm reading right off their site. This is the zero aggression principle, the ZAP. No one should initiate harm against another. Because this is the principle, the Zero Aggression Project is pro-government but anti-state. Can you tell the difference between a government and a state? The state is bullying. It uses blackmail and threats of violence. It's aggressive. It uses initiation. Oh, it, it initiates actual violence when the bullying doesn't gain submission. 
Three, monopolistic. You ne neither you nor I can fire the state and hire a better service provider. Now, see, there's some mimicking going on here. These are key words that we, uh, that we use all the time. Better service provider. We don't want a monopoly government. We want, to, we want to be able to choose our service provider. Government shouldn't be aggressive. They shouldn't be bullying. Um, yeah, um, the problem with all of this is if you notice the wording, no one should initiate harm against another. It's almost like John, you wrote that. He didn't, but it's almost like he could have. Remember what I was reading his stuff earlier? No one should initiate harm against another. That's not the zero aggression principle. Who determines harm? Hillary Clinton, again, and Nancy Pelosi could completely agree with this. No one should initiate harm against another. This is entirely, this is not a conservative, this is not a liberal, this is not a libertarian. This is a vague statement that can be taken in any particular way that the reader wants to take it. No one should, but, you know, but you can, but you shouldn't. It's like, it's like um, well, you shouldn't beat your wife. You shouldn't. You know, but sometimes, sometimes you have to beat her, right? Is that, is that right? Is that how we take this meeting? Oh, you shouldn't beat your wife. You shouldn't harm your wife. You know, but sometimes you just have to because she gets out of hand. I mean, you know, she brings it on herself, right? That's why we beat her? Can you use, can you twist this around and see how it could be used that way? Of course, I don't uh, support the beating of anybody, but you get my meaning. You get how... Just by being vague and by saying, okay, we're going to define the zero aggression principle, and then you give a non-definition for it, double speak. You change the meaning of words and therefore changing the thoughts that go with them. Government can only use violence defensively. It can never initiate. See, that's, that's again from the same downsized DC wording. John, you would agree with that. After all, it's the whole war on terror. Isn't the whole war on terror based on D.C. government defending itself? When Homeland Security feels up your grandma, aren't they doing it to defend you? Because you can't do those things yourself, right? Isn't that the same logic? They think they're acting defensively. Because they've been brainwashed, these words have lost their meanings the, the words have been washed through so that when you say no one should initiate harm against someone else and government can only use violence defensively, it can never initiate. Well, let me read what the actual zero aggression principle is. And again, this is coming from Wikipedia, and it's a pretty good article. I've added to this article myself, as many others have. But this is a really good definition coming from Wikipedia. The non-aggression principle, also called the non-aggression axiom, the anti-coercion principle, the zero-aggression principle, the non-initiation of force, the zap, or the nap, is a moral stance which asserts that aggression is inherently illegitimate. Aggression, for the purpose of the zap or nap, is defined as the initiation or threatening of violence against a person or legitimately owned property of another. Specifically, any unsolicited action of others that physically affect an individual's property or person, which may also be considered that person's property, 
No matter if the result of those actions is damaging, beneficial, or neutral to the owner, are considered violent or aggressive when they are against the owner's free will and interfere with his right to self-determination or the principle of self-ownership. Supporters of NAP or ZAP often use it to demonstrate the immorality of theft, vandalism, assault, and fraud. In contrast to pacifism, the non-aggression principle does not preclude violence used in self-defense or, def or in the defense of others. Now that's what the actual zero-aggression principle is. The zero-aggression principle is not, no one should. Sounds like John Yu wrote that. No one should crush your child's testicles to get information out of them. Hey, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do, right, John? Right? Folks, these are mimics. These are mimics in the Garden of Liberty. They are well disguised. They use the words we use, but they use them in a double speak, speaking an entirely different language to justify their actions. People who want to make government do the things they want it to do. And if you say, well, you're picking on downside D.C., they're really, 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 really trying to make government smaller and work better. Has that ever worked in history? Has there ever been a time that any organization or any amount of influence has caused the state to suddenly go, oh, you know what? I'm going to start being nice to people. I'm going to stop aggressing upon them. I'm going to stop robbing them at the point of a gun. Has this ever once worked? No, it never has. And if you continue to do the same silly behavior over and over and over, expecting a different result, what exactly are you? And if we believe the lines and the lies that we read in places like this, whether we're talking about the, the, the Hoover Institute or whether we're talking about the Cato Institute or whether we're talking about downsized D.C. or their zero aggression, what was it, policy? Was that what they called it? it? It doesn't matter who these people are or what kind of words that they use or how close it comes to actually sounding like the things, oh, zero, zero aggression project, that's what it was, zero aggression project, yeah. We're going to have a project. We're not actually going to do it, but it's a project we're working on. We'll get to it eventually, as soon as we crush a few testicles, right? I mean, sometimes you got to bust heads. You can't make an omelet without scrambling a few eggs, you know what I'm saying? You see the difference in the mentality? You see the difference in where these people are coming from? It's perfectly okay to work towards a smaller government. After all, we're doing things you can't do for yourself. But this is part of the lie. There's no such thing as downsizing D.C. There's no such thing as restraining a government to its constitutional restrictions. These are all myths and lies, and they've been fed to the American public, and they've been fed to the world now for hundreds of years. And the only reason that these lies are being fed to the public is because the previous lies became obvious. But these lies have to be made obvious as well. And that's what our job is. Our job is to get into that garden and find those things that are either threatening to the garden or that are sucking the life out of the, the, the garden. The things that are using up resources that could be going towards liberty, but instead it's going towards more political activity in Washington, D.C. That's what Downsize D.C. is doing. That's what the Hoover Institute is doing. That's what the Cato Institute is doing. That's what... Ron Paul is doing. Action 
inside Washington, D.C., money sent to people who go into Washington, D.C., and then take that money and try to influence government to do the things they want it to do. I, I don't have time to go back and talk about Bastiat and talk about how the actions of government, no matter how they look, end up causing harm down the road somewhere. I, I don't have time to go into that. I've run out of time. I've run over my time. Folks, we have to clear the garden. We have to clear these weeds. We have to clear these mimics. We can't let them constantly bait us to come up and say, Oh, look, it's, a ni- it's just a nice worm. I think I'll just come up and chomp. Folks, for more on liberty, property rights, and the zero aggression principle, go to badquaker.com. Thank you very much for listening to